Preface to the Genealogy of Morals by Friedrich Nietzsche. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Church. The Genealogy of Morals by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Horace B. Samuel. Preface. 1. We are unknown, we knowers, ourselves to ourselves. This has its own good reason. We have never searched for ourselves. How should it then come to pass that we should ever find ourselves? Rightly has it been said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our treasure is there, where stand the hives of our knowledge. It is to those hives that we are always striving, as born creatures of flight, and as the honey-gatherers of the spirit, we care really in our hearts only for one thing, to bring something home to the hive. As far as the rest of life with its so-called experiences is concerned, which of us has even sufficient serious interest, or sufficient time? In our dealings with such points of life, we are, I fear, never properly to the point. To be precise, our heart is not there, and certainly not our ear. Rather like one who, delighting in a divine distraction, or sunken in the seas of his own soul, in whose ear the clock has just thundered with all its force, its twelve strokes of noon, suddenly wakes up and asks himself, what has in point of fact just struck? So do we at times rub afterwards, as it were, our puzzled ears, and ask in complete astonishment and complete embarrassment, through what have we in point of fact just lived? Further, who are we in point of fact? And count, after they have struck, as I have explained, all the twelve throbbing beats of the clock of our experience, of our life, of our being, ah, and count wrong in the endeavor. Of necessity we remain strangers to ourselves, we understand ourselves not. In ourselves we are bound to be mistaken, for of us holds good to all eternity the motto, each one is farthest away from himself. As far as ourselves are concerned, we are not knowers. 2. My thoughts concerning the genealogy of our moral prejudices, for they constitute the issue of, in this polemic, have their first bald and provisional expression in that collection of aphorisms entitled Human All Too Human, a book for free minds, the writing of which was begun in Sorrento during a winter which allowed me to gaze over the broad and dangerous territory through which my mind had up to that time wandered. This took place in the winter of 1876-77. to 77. The thoughts themselves are older. They were in their substance already the same thoughts which I take up again in the following treatises. We hope that they have derived benefit from the long interval, that they have grown riper, clearer, stronger, more complete. The fact, however, that I still cling to them even now, that in the meanwhile they have always held faster by each other, have, in fact, grown out of their original shape and into each other, 
all this strengthens in my mind the joyous confidence that they must have been originally neither separate disconnected capricious nor sporadic phenomena but have sprung from a common root from a fundamental fiat of knowledge whose empire reached to the soul's depth and that ever grew more definite in its voice and more definite in its demands that is the only state of affairs that is proper in the case of a philosopher we have no right to be disconnected we must neither err disconnectedly nor strike the truth disconnectedly rather with the necessity with which a tree bears its fruit so do our thoughts our values our yeses and noes and ifs and weathers grow connected and interrelated mutual witnesses of one will one health one kingdom one sun as to whether they are to your taste these fruits of ours but what matters that to the trees what matters that to us us the philosophers three owing to a scrupulosity peculiar to myself which i confess reluctantly it concerns indeed morality a scrupulosity which manifests itself in my life at such an early period with so much spontaneity with so chronic a persistence and so keen an opposition to environment epoch precedent and ancestry that i should have been almost entitled to style it my a priori my curiosity and my suspicion felt themselves betimes bound to halt at the question of what in point of actual fact was the origin of our good and of our evil indeed at the boyish age of thirteen the problem of the origin of evil already haunted me at an age when games and god divide one's heart i devoted to that problem my first childish attempt at the literary game my first philosophic essay and as regards my infantile solution of the problem well i gave quite properly the honor to god and made him the father of evil did my own a priori demand that precise solution from me that new immortal or at least amoral a priori and that categorical imperative which was its voice but oh how hostile to the kantian article and how pregnant with problems to which since then i have given more and more attention and indeed what is more than attention fortunately i soon learned to separate theological from moral prejudices and i gave up looking for any supernatural origin of evil a certain amount of historical and philological education to say nothing of an innate faculty of psychological discrimination par excellence succeeded in transforming almost immediately my original problem into the following one under what conditions did man invent for himself those judgments of values good and evil and what intrinsic value do they possess in themselves have they up to the present hindered or advanced human well-being are they a symptom of the distress impoverishment and degeneration of human life or conversely is it in them that is manifested the fullness the strength and the will of life its courage its self-confidence its future on this point i found and hazarded in my mind the most diverse answers 
i established distinctions in periods peoples and castes i became a specialist in my problem and from my answers grew new questions new investigations new conjectures new probabilities until at last i had a land of my own and a soil of my own a whole secret world growing and flowering like hidden gardens of whose existence no one could have an inkling oh how happy are we we finders of knowledge provided that we know how to keep silent sufficiently long four my first impulse to publish something of my hypotheses concerning the origin of morality i owe to a clear well-written and even precocious little book in which a perverse and vicious kind of moral philosophy your real english kind was definitely presented to me for the first time and this attracted me with that magnetic attraction inherent in that which is diametrically opposed and antithetical to one's own ideas the title of that book was the origin of moral emotions its author dr paul ray the year of its appearance eighteen seventy seven i may almost say that i have never read anything in which every single dogma and conclusion has called forth from me so emphatic a negation as did that book albeit a negation untainted by either pique or intolerance i referred accordingly both in season and out of season in the previous works at which i was then working to the arguments of that book not to refute them for what have i got to do with mere refutations but substituting as it is natural to a positive mind for an improbable theory one which is more probable and occasionally no doubt for one philosophic error or another in that early period i gave as i have said the first public expression to those theories of origin to which these essays are devoted but with a clumsiness which i was the last to conceal from myself for i was as yet cramped being still without a special language for these special subjects still frequently liable to relapse and vacillation to go into details compare what i say in human all to human part one about the parallel early history of good and evil aphorism forty five namely their origin from the castes of the aristocrats and the slaves similarly aphorism one thirty six and so forth concerning the birth and value of ascetic morality similarly aphorisms 96 99 volume 2 aphorism 89 concerning the morality of custom that far older and more original kind of morality which is toto calo different from the altruistic ethics in which dr ray like all english moral philosophers sees the ethical thing in itself finally aphorism 92 similarly aphorism twenty six in human all too human part two and aphorism one twelve in the dawn of day concerning the origin of justice as a balance between persons of approximately equal power equilibrium as the hypothesis of all contract consequently of all law similarly concerning the origin of punishment human all too human part two aphorisms twenty two twenty three in regard to which the deterrent object is neither essential nor original as dr ray thinks rather is it that this object is only an imported under certain definite conditions and always is something extra and additional five 
In reality, I had set my heart at that time on something much more important than the nature of the theories of myself or others concerning the origin of morality, or more precisely, the real function from my view of these theories was to point an end to which they were one among many means. The issue for me was the value of morality, and on that subject I had to place myself in a state of abstraction in which I was almost alone with my great teacher Schopenhauer, to whom that book, with all its passion and inherent contradiction, for that book was also a polemic, turned for present help as though he were still alive. The issue was, strangely enough, the value of the unegoistic instincts, the instincts of pity, self-denial, and self-sacrifice which Schopenhauer had so persistently painted in golden colors deified and etherealized that eventually they appeared to him as it were high and dry as intrinsic values in themselves on the strength of which he uttered both to life and to himself his own negation but against these very instincts there voiced itself in my soul a more and more fundamental mistrust a skepticism that dug even deeper and deeper and in this very instinct I saw the great danger of mankind, its most sublime temptation and seduction. Seduction to what? To nothingness? In these very instincts I saw the beginning of the end, stability, the exhaustion that gazes backwards, the will turning against life, the last illness announcing itself with its own mincing melancholy, I realized that the morality of pity which spread wider and wider and whose grip infected even philosophers with its disease was the most sinister symptom of our modern European civilization. I realized that it was the route along which that civilization slid on its way to a new Buddhism, a European Buddhism, nihilism. This exaggerated estimation in which modern philosophers have held pity is quite a new phenomenon. Up to the time, philosophers were absolutely unanimous as to the worthlessness of pity. I need only mention Plato, Spinoza, La Rochefoucauld, and Kant, four minds as mutually different as is possible, but united on one point, their contempt of pity. 6. This problem of the value of pity and of pity morality I am an opponent of the modern infamous emasculation of our emotions, seems at the first blush a mere isolated problem, a note of interrogation for itself. He, however, who once halts at this problem and learns how to put questions, will experience what I experienced. A new and immense vista unfolds itself before him. A sense of potentiality seizes him like a vertigo. Every species of doubt mistrust and fear springs up the belief in morality nay in all morality totters finally a new demand voices itself let us speak out of this new demand we need a critique of moral values the value of these values is for the first time to be called into question and for this purpose a knowledge is necessary of the conditions and circumstances out of which these values grew, and under which they experienced their evolution and their distortion, morality as a result, as a symptom, as a mask, as tartuffism, as disease, as a misunderstanding, 
but also a morality as a cause as a remedy as a stimulant as a fetter as a drug especially as such a knowledge has neither existed up to the present time nor is even now generally desired the value of these values was taken for granted as an indisputable fact which was beyond all question no one has up to the present exhibited the faintest doubt or hesitation in judging the good man to be of a higher value than the evil man or a higher value with regard specifically to human progress utility and prosperity generally not forgetting the future what suppose the converse were the truth what suppose there lurked in the good man a symptom of retrogression such as a danger a temptation a poison a narcotic by means of which the present battened on the future more comfortable and less risky perhaps than its opposite but also pettier meaner so that morality would really be saddled with the guilt if the maximum potentiality of the power and splendor of the human species were never to be attained so that really morality would be the danger of dangers seven enough that after this vista had disclosed itself to me i myself had reason to search for learned bold and industrious colleagues i am doing it even to this very day it means traversing with new clamorous questions and at the same time with new eyes the immense distance and completely unexplored land of morality of a morality which has actually existed and been actually lived and is this not practically equivalent to first discovering that land if in this context i thought amongst others of the aforesaid dr ray i did so because i had no doubt that from the very nature of his questions he would be compelled to have recourse to a truer method in order to obtain his answers have i deceived myself on that score I wished at all events to give a better direction of vision to an eye of such keenness and such impartiality. I wished to direct him to the real history of morality, and to warn him, while there was yet time, against a world of English theories that culminated in the blue vacuum of heaven. Other colors, of course, rise immediately to one's mind as being a hundred times more potent than blue for a genealogy of morals for instance gray by which i mean authentic facts capable of definite proof and having actually existed or to put it shortly the whole of that long hieroglyphic script which is so hard to decipher about the past history of human morals this script was unknown to dr ray but he had read darwin and so in his philosophy the darwinian beast and that pink of modernity the demure weakling and dilettante who bites no longer shake hands politely in a fashion that is at least instructive the latter exhibiting a certain facial expression of, of refined and good-humoured indolence tinged with a touch of pessimism and exhaustion as if really did not pay to take all these things i mean moral problems so seriously i on the other hand think that there are no subjects which pay better for being taken seriously part of this payment is that perhaps eventually they admit of being taken gaily this gaiety indeed or to use my own language this joyful wisdom is a payment 
a payment for a protracted, brave, laborious, and burrowing seriousness, which it goes without saying, is the attribute of but a few. But on that day, on which we say from the fullness of our hearts, forward, our old morality too is fit material for comedy, we shall have discovered a new plot and a new possibility for the Dionysian drama entitled The Soul's Fate, and he will speedily utilize it. One can wager safely he the great ancient eternal dramatist of the comedy of our existence. 8. If this writing be obscure to any individuals and a jar on his ears, I do not think that it is necessarily I who am to blame. It is clear enough on the hypothesis which I presuppose, namely that the reader has first read my previous writings and has not grudged them a certain amount of trouble. It is not indeed a simple matter to get really at their essence. Take, for instance, my Zarathustra. I allow no one to pass muster as knowing that book, unless every single word therein has at some point wrought in him a profound wound and at some time exercised on him a profound enchantment. Then and not till then can he enjoy the privilege of participating reverently in this halcyon element from which that work is born, in its sunny brilliance, its distance, its spaciousness, its certainty. In other cases, the aphoristic form produces difficulty, but this is only because this form is treated too casually. An aphorism properly coined and cast into its final mold is far from being deciphered as soon as it has been read. On the contrary, it is then that first requires to be expounded. Of course, for that purpose, an art of exposition is necessary. The third essay in this book provides an example of what is offered, of what in such cases I call exposition. An aphorism is prefixed to that essay, the essay itself is its commentary. Certainly one quality which nowadays has been best forgotten, and that is why it will take some time yet for my writings to become readable, is essential in order to practice reading as an art, a quality for the exercise of which it is necessary to be a cow, and under no circumstance a modern man. Rumination. Sils Maria, Upper Engadine, July. 1887. End of preface. Recording by Jeffrey Church.